Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Before it was Hartford Hospital's Institute of Living, it was the Hartford Retreat for the Insane. Today, where we live, psychiatrist Dr. Hank Schwartz joins us to share the history of this Connecticut mental health center 200 years after its opening. Although some asylums had a reputation for inhumane treatment towards the mentally ill, the Hartford Retreat was a pioneer in taking the approach that all patients should be treated with respect and dignity. We hear how that philosophy informs how the Institute operates today. Now, what questions do you have about the history of asylums in our state? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first on Zoom is Dr. Hank Schwartz, a psychiatrist and chief emeritus of Hartford Hospital's Institute of Living. Hank, welcome to the show. Hey, hi, Lucy. Pleasure to be here. And I should note that Connecticut Historical Society hosted a conversation, I believe, with you in April about the history of the Institute of Living, and I thought it would be a great topic to have on the show today. So thank you for coming on. Sure. I'm always happy to talk about it. So for people who may not know about the history of the Hartford Retreat, uh, tell us about how uh, this uh, institution uh, was founded in our state, and I believe at a time when there were few uh, facilities that treated those who were mentally ill? Well, actually, it was a time when there were no facilities um, in Connecticut, though a couple had developed uh, elsewhere. You know, the background um, is important to understand, and that is that the treatment of the mentally disordered around the turn of the 19th century, the 1800s, was really abysmal. People were kept in poor houses, almshouses, prisons. Sometimes a town would bid out the mentally disordered uh, individual to the lowest bidder. Um, and the results were, were really awful. That, that, that could result in the building of a cage on the side of a barn in which somebody uh, might be kept. And, you know, there are a number of stories that really depict that. And so... Um, <clears throat> At, at the turn of the 19th century, uh, really it was the, the second great awakening. Uh, it was a, a time of, of great initiatives in, in public works. Um, and uh, in a sense that individuals through their own efforts could be bettered. Um, around that time, um, Eli Todd, who was a physician in Farmington, who had significant mental illness in his family, his father um, and his and his wife, were very interested in approaches to treating uh, the mentally disordered, brought a group of physicians together to think about and develop thoughts and, and plans for the creation of, a, of an asylum in Connecticut that would be based on something new, a new philosophy that was known as moral treatment. It had come 
across the ocean from uh, a, a few different places, the York Retreat in England, um, uh, the BC Tray and the Sol Petriere in, in Paris were places where the notion that mental disorder might be an illness, and if it was an illness, it needed to be treated with the best medical care available, and that, that mentally disordered were, were folks just like everybody else who needed to be treated with dignity and respect, that they were not demonized, um, possessed by the devil, congenitally inferior, um, malevolent, dangerous. Um, and so moral treatment emanated to the United States. Here in Hartford, Todd was um, one of the national figures who really developed it. Um, he petitioned the state of Connecticut for a charter uh, for an asylum. The Connecticut State Medical Society supported his efforts in this regard and actually even contributed $600 from their coffers. Now, that emptied out their coffers at the time. And it also made the Connecticut State Medical Society the only state medical society that actually supported the establishment of an asylum or, or really of a hospital of any kind um, right to this present day. So a charter, a charter was granted and in, eight, in 1822, and in 1824, the Hartford Retreat for the Insane opened its doors. Can you tell us more about Dr. Eli Todd? Again, you mentioned that uh, he was uh, from Farmington. Uh, he was a well-known, influential doctor. But what was in his family's uh, history that influenced him uh, to gravitate towards this moral treatment, as you mentioned? Well, his father had been um, very depressed through most of his life. Um, he ultimately died, and it's really not known if his father died um, by suicide, but it has been suspected. His wife, however, um, was also very depressed, and ultimately she did take her own life, despite his efforts over many years um, to treat her, of course, we don't we don't treat our spouses um, in these days. We ref, we refer our spouses, uh, you know, to uh, healthcare providers, to mental health care providers, other than ourselves. But in those days, there there weren't there, there wasn't anything uh, else. Um, so he tried, um, but he failed, um, and uh, he was distressed throughout his life um, by his inability to really stabilize um, his his wife's care. Uh, his wife's uh, illness. And so um, he worked very hard to bring this group together, a group of physicians, and to convince the medical society to get behind this initiative, to convince the legislature that um, an asylum should be established. And uh, he ultimately succeeded. And he was really a critical figure in the development of moral treatment. As he established the retreat and as, as we opened up uh, for care to the public, he insisted on what he called his law of kindness. And the law of kindness was, you know, it's very simple and straightforward. It is almost exactly what it says. It is that individuals admitted to the Hartford retreat must be treated with compassion, with dignity, with respect, 
attention must be given to their psychological issues, to the social context um, in which they are living. While they're with us, we have to pay attention to how they occupy their time and help them to occupy their time in, in what today we call you know, occupational therapy. I mean, good works, whether it was um, helping um, with the Hartford Retreats farm, you know, at the time for the male patients or, or uh, developing their needlepoint skills uh, for the female patients. And, you know, these were the occupational um, uh, therapies of, of the day. Um, all of this, uh, you know, these were the, the basic elements of moral treatment. Mm. Uh, he came to be recognized as really one of the founders of the moral treatment movement in America and the Hartford Retreat um, as one of the founding asylums uh, that um, initiated moral treatment, which, you know, if you think about it, really represented um, the, the founding of modern psychiatry. Um, today, we think of the biopsychosocial model. That's the, the model that we apply, which re requires that we address the biology, the psychology, and the social aspects of, um, of a patient's life. Um, really started with moral treatment um, mm -hmm. in 1824 when our doors opened. Right. You're hearing Hank Schwartz here on Where We Live, psychiatrist and chief emeritus of Hartford Hospital's Institute of Living. When it opened its doors uh, 200 years ago, it was the Hartford Retreat for the Insane, and we're learning about that history today. You can join us if you have a question, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, when we think about the 1800s and the science uh, developing uh, psychiatry, what were the afflictions out? Uh, at the time, uh, Hank, and who were the people that entered the Hartford Retreat first, the patients? Well, you know, I think the, the afflictions were not really different, I believe, than the mental illnesses that we have today, with, with some exceptions. But back then, how to understand them, what to think about them, how to categorize them, um, that was very, very different. So um, there are many uh, individuals in, in, the, in the records as we read about um, the early days who clearly suffered from what today we would call major depression. Um, at the time, um, it was thought of as melancholia was a, you know, a very, very common term. There were many individuals who um, experienced one form of a psychotic illness uh, or, or another, probably um, what today we would think of as bipolar disorder um, or uh, schizophrenia. Um, but uh, the term schizophrenia had not yet you know, evolved and the way of categorizing patients that way um, had not yet um, evolved. One thing that was um, very different is that dementia was not recognized as a clearly distinct category of, of, uh, of mental disorder. Today, we think of, of dementia primarily as a neurologic disorder with very important psychiatric overtones. Um, at that time, there was no sort of separation um, of, of dementia from the other, other psychotic illnesses. The people who were admitted, um, that's a very interesting story. Um, 
one of the most interesting things, I think, is that the rights of individuals um, were thought of, you know, quite differently then. It was possible for a husband to um, admit his wife uh, on very little evidence other than his word uh, that there was something wrong. And of course, uh, once in the hospital, it took some decades to really establish the kind of legal protections that could then um, uh, enable someone uh, to uh, assert their rights, perhaps in a court or whatever, and, and, and be released um, regardless of, of the husband's wishes. Um, another issue about you know, who was uh, admitted and, and who wasn't uh, that from the very earliest days of the Hartford retreat was really how to care for the indigent. Um, there was, despite the $600 gift from the Connecticut Medical Society, there, were, there was a, a small grant from the state at the time of the founding of the Institute. And then over the ensuing decades, occasionally some additional small grants. There was a state lottery at one point that provided some support. But essentially, the Hartford Retreat for the Insane was considered a private institution and not one significantly supported with state funds. So how to treat the indigent? Well, uh, the Hartford Retreat established it a sliding scale. Um, there, there were uh, lower charges uh, for people who had lesser funds and, and higher charges um, for people uh, who were supported uh, differently with, with, um, uh, with greater support. Um, and this continued, and it was a struggle for the Hartford Retreat, truly, to provide care for the indigent sufficient to meet the needs, not just of the community, but really for many years, essentially, of the entire state, uh, as it was the only asylum for, for many, many years. That changed in 1867 when the hospital that is um, now uh, Connecticut Valley uh, was established. I believe it was called the Connecticut Asylum for the Insane. Um, and uh, it took uh, a fair amount of the pressure um, to treat the indigent from the Hartford Retreat um, as it was its mission, uh, and, it, and it was fully state-supported uh, to do that. Though even that didn't last for long as the what, what is now Connecticut Valley Hospital, within a decade or two, was overwhelmed um, by the numbers um, of mentally disordered folks that it needed to treat. Um, and once again, the Hartford Retreat for the Insane um, was uh, under significant pressure to take on a significant part of that care and to do it without significant funding from the state. Mm. Did we start to see a, a difference in how uh, those who were able to afford uh, the private uh, care um, that they were that they were able to embrace this moral treatment, this curative approach versus uh, the many who were indigent who ended up at the at the public hospital? Was it more custodial? I'm wondering if you can talk about um, that distinction. Well, you know the the public hospital, um, Connecticut, um, the CVH. Uh, or it, it's um, it, its early version uh, was established 
with the principles of moral treatment as well and with very, very good intentions. But those intentions were very difficult to sustain. And obviously, as uh, we all know the story of the public hospitals from the late 1800s and into the 1900s, they moved further and further into uh, positions of custodial care. Um, the worst versions of those positions came to be known as, um, you know, the, the sort of snake pits, um, you know, that, that we have heard about. Um, but again, I would have to say that there was a relationship between the amount of support, the readiness of the state to build additional hospitals to meet the demand, and the, and the ability to sustain the principles of moral treatment, which did fade. Um, I believe that the principles of moral treatment were sustained um, throughout the history of, of the Hartford Retreat, which of course became the Institute of Living um, in 1939 when, when the name was changed. And we, we do have documentation of the position of the various superintendents um, over the years uh, that they felt obligated and felt it was the mission of the institution both to continue treating the indigent as best we could and to maintain uh, the principles of moral treatment in the, in the care of our patients. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. We're learning about the history of the Institute of Living in Hartford 200 years after it opened. In 1822, it was known as the Hartford Retreat. You're hearing Dr. Hank Schwartz, a psychiatrist and chief emeritus at the Institute of Living, now part of the Hartford Healthcare Network. We're going to keep talking after a short break. And if you have questions, you can join us too. 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Mental health care has certainly evolved from the early days when people with mental illness were just locked away from society. The founder of what is now the Institute of Living in Hartford, Farmington's Dr. Eli Todd, opened the Hartford Retreat in 1822 with the mindset that patients deserved humane care. Todd was a pioneer in treating all patients with respect and dignity, and we're learning about that approach 200 years later and the philosophy care today at the Institute of of Living. My guest on Zoom is Dr. Hank Schwartz, psychiatrist and chief emeritus at the Institute of Living. You know, we talked earlier, Hank, about the afflictions at the time and the people uh, that sought care or were sent there. But I'm wondering about when we think about how, you know, what treatments they received and when they left, were they better? What do we know? Well, the treatments, of course, were limited. Um, I, I would say that you know the emergence of moral care marked the beginnings of what we might call psychotherapy, which is to say, just you know the, the fact that the doctors and attendants spoke with patients um, and discussed the way they felt and um, what problems they think may may have brought them into the hospital, you know, can be thought of as you know the very very beginning of psychotherapy, and it certainly didn't exist. Uh, prior to that time. But um, of course, from the point of view of medical care, some of, you know, when we think of, well, uh, okay, mental disorders and mental illness and is, is, a, is an illness. And so it deserves the best of medical care. For a time, the best of medical care might have been bloodletting. And that, that sounds um, horrific, but um, it was actually in advance if the mental people with mental disorder were treated equivalently as everybody else with any kind of, of illness. But really, um, most of the treatment, medical treatment that folks um, uh, received um, revolved around a, a, a small number of uh, pharmaceuticals. The opioids were available, laudanum um, and uh, other tinctures that were opioid based were used to help calm um, people. Uh, people received purges um, uh, and um, uh, various tonics, um, some of which were, you know, today might qualify as, uh, as herbal treatments um, and which were, you know, moderately effective. But the main treatment, I think, was the tincture of time and kindness um, and many people did improve. You know, we know today that many people with bipolar disorder and major depression um, go through phases of illness. And um, with uh, kindness and good care and good intentions um, do come out of their episodes of illness. But it, it's also true that at the time, both at the Hartford Retreat and at some of the other asylums um, that, were, that were developed, there was an emphasis on cure that really didn't match reality. So statistics were promoted that um, you know, 80 and 90 or even 100% of the patients discharged from this asylum or that you know, at the time um, were cured when um, nobody could really say that. But you know, the, the science of, of following the course of, of illness you know, was really, you know, undeveloped. So, um, you know, we can't hold those statements to today's standards. Um, we know that many people who are discharged became ill again, 
essentially there was no such there was no follow-up care we had no systems of outpatient um, mental health treatment there were no partial hospitals or intensive outpatient programs uh, so people were pretty much left to the devices of their families and, and communities. Some stayed well and were improved. And, and of course, um, uh, many had recurrences of illnesses. Mm. It's interesting to learn about the early days of the Institute of Living back then. Uh, and I'm wondering when we fast forward and think about the deinstitutionalization of asylums, you know, how did that impact the, the work, the care? Um, being offered at the Institute of Living, Hank. Yes, yeah, I think that's very important. Jumping forward to the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and, and 80s with the beginnings of, of deinstitutionalization, um, the, the shutting down of the state hospitals, which followed the passage of the Community Mental Health Act in 1963, which, you know, where the, the federal government said, hey, we're going to take all this money that's going to inpatient care in state hospitals, and we're going to build community mental health centers, and everybody will be treated um, uh, out in the community in ambulatory care. Very well-intentioned, but the money did not follow. And the community mental health centers, well, some of them were built, but many of them that were to have been built um, didn't follow. And so that was the, the state hospitals, of course, seeing the opportunity to shut down the cost to them, closed down, and so many folks um, wound up on the streets, um, uh, in jails and in prisons. So one of the results of that is that today, prisons, some of the prisons, uh, the the uh, Los Angeles County Jail, um, the Chicago, Rikers Island um, in New York City, are the largest providers of mental health care in the country. But another thing happened along with deinstitutionalization, and that was the managed care movement, which really found uh, the psychiatric institutions to be their, the soft underbelly of, of managed care. When I arrived in Hartford in 1989, the average length of stay at, at, at the Institute of Living was about 120 days. Um, within just years, that was reduced to 88 days. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm misspeaking. The average um, census in the hospital was over 400, and within years, it was reduced to 88. The average length of stay, the amount of time the patient would spend in the hospital, was 120 days, and that was reduced in just a few years to 10 or 12 days, and then even further. The result was catastrophic for psychiatric hospitals' uh, ability to treat patients, um, and many shut down. Many um, were sold to private companies who felt they could still squeeze out a few more dollars from this you know, business, and many others merged with uh, other institutions nearby. The, the solution for the Institute of Living was to merge with Hartford Hospital. And in doing so, the Institute of Living was able to receive Medicaid payment as only the general hospitals were for the treatment of poor and indigent patients. And for the first time in its history, really um, take on the needs of the community as fully as uh, the needs um, demanded. 
that was the beginning of a, of a turnaround for the Institute of Living and, and for many other um, like um, institutions. But it was the deinstitutionalization and managed care um, era was really very, very tough. And it was the patients who suffered. You were a psychiatrist in chief for many years at Institute of Living, and now you're chief emeritus uh, again at this uh, facility. And you know, I'm wondering, you know, how you feel about the moment we're in now—the uh, mental health crisis uh, that um, so many are experiencing, especially after two years, uh, the, the, the high rate of suicide among young people. Hank, I mean, what what does uh, this mental health care system look like today in terms of you know reaching people who need help? Well, um, it's a little bit better than it was um, 100 years ago. Um, in, here in Connecticut, um, we have a Department of Mental Health that I think is more advanced than, than many others uh, in the country, but it remains the case that we really do not have an adequate overall system um, to address the needs of, of the mentally ill, We're, and the pandemic is demonstrating that. But even before the pandemic, suicide rates in young people were going up before the pandemic. They continue to go up. The rates of depression uh, and anxiety were going up in young people, but not just young people. Now, um, adults of all ages, um, possibly pandemic-related, but I think related to many other things that are going on in our society, uh, you know, politically and, and, and otherwise. Um, and the capacity of all systems to provide adequate care are just the capacities are severely strained. Um, Definitely strained. Uh, you know, before we run out of time, uh, Hank, I wanted to read a tweet from uh, Kathy, who was curious to hear your thoughts about Hartford Healthcare uh, allowing patients on their inpatient psychiatric uh, units to now use their personal devices and cell phones so that they're able to maintain connection to the community. What are your thoughts there? Um, well, you know, I think that um, the era of taking those you know capacities away that cell phones and and, and ipads uh, was uh, well intended um and there's still to this day are some folks on inpatient units whose communications um with you know with others um does have to be um limited people who may be making threats um or or exceptionally disorganized but as a rule um, I think the greater degree to which we can extend the dignity of the individual in every way, the better. Um, here's another example. For, you know, for years, concerns about risk, we're in such a liability-driven society, have led hospitals to take away patients' shoelaces, take away their belts, take away um, you know, anything that they could possibly harm themselves with. I think there needs to be a rebalancing um, of these issues that focuses on uh, dignity and respect for the individual. But of course, we have to be willing to accept a certain degree of greater risk of the possibility of, of liability, risk to the individual as we do that. 
Again, you have been hearing Dr. Hank Schwartz, psychiatrist and chief emeritus of Hartford Hospital's Institute of Living. Thank you so much for for providing us this history of this really remarkable uh, facility in our state, uh, one of the pioneers in mental health care in the country. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on, Lucy. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Now, coming up after the break, journalist and author Daniel Bergner joins us to talk about his book, The Mind and the Moon, My Brother's Story, The Science of Our Brains, and the Search for Our Psyches. New York Times Magazine just published an excerpt of his book, and part of it focuses on the movement to shift mainstream thinking away from medication and toward greater acceptance of mental illness. We'll talk with him after a short break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Earlier we were learning about the Institute of Living in Hartford and its 200-year history in delivering mental health care. Now my next guest has written a book that includes a focus on the growing movement to normalize mental illness and provide alternative care that does not involve institutionalization or medication. On with us Zoom is Daniel Bergner, who's a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine. Daniel, welcome to our show. Thanks, Lucy. It's great to be talking with you. Now, I mentioned that you have a new book out, The Mind and the Moon, My Brother's Story, The Science of Our Brains, and The Search for Our Psyches. And so tell us a little bit about your brother and what led you to do this research. Right. So back when we were in our early 20s, my brother was diagnosed as quite severely manic depressive. And he was put on a lot of board, heavily medicated, and our terrified parents. And he were told that he would likely become suicidal if he didn't adhere to that medication lifelong. Uh, He's an artist, a pianist, couldn't perform at the level he wished Uh, on that medication because of the side effects. And so after several years went off against psychiatric advice, definitely there were some really difficult times and arrest, homelessness uh, in his late 20s, early 30s. But he's lived three flourishing, flourishing decades. I hope we'll get into that later ever since. And so that raised really profound issues for us, questions about sort of the permanence of conditions that we're told are permanent, uh, the inevitability, the, the rightness of medical regimens and medical ways of seeing our psyches. And so that led me to tell his story, to tell the woman named Caroline, fascinating woman who hears voices, and to get into the movement to rethink, um, to think our way away from the medicalization of our minds that we've taken for granted basically since the 1980s. I definitely want to hear about Caroline, but for people who are listening who uh, may have a mental illness or someone in their family uh, that may have a, a severe a psychiatric condition, you know, the idea of not taking medication to treat uh, their uh, symptom, their conditions, you know, that might be extreme uh, to, to some. And so can you talk more about that? 
Yes, and I want to pause on what you just said. So I would be arrogant and irresponsible to advocate abandoning medication. I'm not doing that. I am raising profound questions about the way we think about our minds and our mental health, but I'm not advocating abandoning medication. Um, you know, around 40 some years ago, psychiatry wanted to claim itself to be a hard science. And meanwhile, the pharmaceutical industry was coming up with psychotropic medication that was relatively new, though, as your previous guest uh, noted, the states back to the 1950s. And that converged in this idea that, you know, our minds become ill just the way, let's say, we get diabetes. And so there's this kind of trope that we treat our minds, we balance out its chemicals the same way that we uh, you know, take insulin for diabetes. That That is a real distortion. And so I spent so much time, the book is driven by Caroline's story, my brother's story, one other character who suffers from depression and anxiety. Um, but I spent a lot of time with the leading psychiatric researchers, people who devoted their entire careers to finding better drugs to medicate our way to mental health. And what I heard consistently is we haven't made progress in about half a century. Even drug companies have pulled back about 70, 80% from their development budgets. And so the question becomes, where do we go from here? It's not abandoning the medications we have, which do work for some people, at least partially, but of course they come with significant side effects. And what can we do differently? How can we think about our mental health differently? And Caroline is someone that you profiled uh, who did try the, the antipsychotic medication and she had, uh, you know, severe uh, symptoms uh, from that medication. And she eventually found that getting off of them completely helped her. Can you just tell us a little bit about her? Right. So Caroline is just a fascinating figure. Um, she started hearing voices as a little, little kid, got worse and worse. Um, just to give listeners a sense, this is a classic symptom of what conventional psychiatry would call psychosis. And so you're hearing voices that can be really fearful and violent. She heard both, uh, you know, even within the last, I don't know, six, seven years, uh, it, during one crisis, heard voices telling her to barricade herself in a room, heard voices telling her that other people are about to kill her. So all the things that we sort of think of as really fearful and deeply, deeply unsettling when we hear about them, she's been through that. But um, antipsychotics did not help. In many ways, they made things worse. The side effects are really glaring ticks, a sense of loss of body control, tremendous weight gain. So the side effects themselves often and for her can deepen the isolation of the condition itself. So she's rethought everything. She would reject that term psychosis and opt for terms like non-consensus or unshared realities, personal realities. 
And she leads a movement that works in several profound ways, but one or two good examples. One is she spreads the idea of hearing voices support groups. So think for shorthand, it's a little bit of an oversimplification about Alcoholics Anonymous groups. And so people are in a room sharing their alternate personal realities. This is so counterintuitive. Conventional psychiatry would work to suppress those realities, whether through drugs or through correcting people. Uh, This is the opposite approach. You're sharing those realities with the idea that making connections, reducing isolation, reducing the sense of deviance and abnormality is going to lessen the pressure of living in a sense in two worlds and thus help people to cope. And it's quite a magical thing to watch. It's, it, you know, can make people nervous, outsiders nervous, but it, it really, I think, holds a lot of promise, especially for those for whom the antipsychotic regimens come at such a cost. And it's, it's hard to overstate what those side effects can be like. It's like having your body be kind of occupied mm-hmm. uh, by a chemical. You mentioned that it's something that's magical to watch, but what are the outcomes for people that Caroline is helping with this approach, Daniel? Great question. Brings us back to all the questions about science. So the truth is that there are very few, if any, good outcome studies about either the unconventional approach that Caroline advocates or the conventional antipsychotic medical approach that psychiatry adheres to. The reason there are so few about the conventional approach is that it's so assumed that we should medicate, that it's considered unethical to have a control group of unmedicated people. So uh, at least in modern times, we have few, if any, studies comparing those two groups. And and the answer is, we don't know. Um, It's compelling. I think it's when you witness it, it's really intuitively very hopeful. Again, I think we have to be careful we're not advocating and Caroline wouldn't advocate that everyone get off medication. There are people who take part in these groups who've actually found a compromise way so that instead of having a psychiatrist who comes in with a a strong enough regimen of drugs to try to subdue those voices, but at the cost of serious side effects, debilitating side effects, we come up with a compromise. Maybe there's a way to just quiet medically some of the voices, but still allow the person to function physically as he or she would like. I have spoken to several people who work like that. There are all kinds of ways, but we, you know, your last guest spoke about how risk, fear of risk and risk management plays such a strong role on the conventional psychiatry side of things. We may all have to take a deep breath, embrace some risk in order to allow people to explore ways to live truly full lives. They're not just doing the occupational therapy. Let me, you know, do the modern version of needle pointing. 
but are really living engaged lives. One quick example about Caroline, it was such an amazing story, and I hope readers will come to it through my book. Um, you know, she'll hear voices loud enough that she'll ask me to repeat a question. At the same time, two days ago, she and I are emailing back and forth about Herman Melville. And this is our conception of those who suffer from these conditions just doesn't always match the complex reality that they are living. You know, I also thought that what was interesting about this excerpt that the New York Times Magazine published from your book, uh, Daniel, again, Daniel Bergner here with us, his book, The Mind and the Moon, My Brother's Story, The Science of Our Brains and the Search for Our Psyches. Uh, when we think about uh, treating uh, mentally, uh, mental illness, uh, treating disorders, you know, there is also a fear of if someone is not on a particular medication, you know, what could happen? Um, you referenced that in this excerpt that, you know, so often people who are mentally ill are often victims of violence and not perpetrators. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that. Yes. So one thing that's pretty well established is that the mentally ill are much more likely to be victims of violence than they are to be perpetrators. Uh, another thing that's fairly well established is that if you factor in issues like homelessness, poverty, and substance abuse, you are going to find those are the real drivers of violence as opposed to the psychiatric condition itself. And let me just turn to someone who's really on the establishment side of this. So uh, here in New York, uh, Mayor Adams is director of uh, the health department, who has a long background in mental health, just said to me, we need to remove the fear if we're going to make any progress. And we need to think upstream. That is, you know, here in New York, subway shooting and people being pushed in front of the subway tracks. And if we're just thinking about the end game, of course, the fear is going to overwhelm careful thinking. We need to think upstream in the sense of how can we reduce the isolation that people are feeling um, and thus reduce the chances that that we reach endpoints that are so horrific? Um, it Again, it involves a different kind of thinking about those who face these challenges. Now, Dr. Versani runs the health department would say, let's combine medication with uh, ways of reducing isolation. Someone like Caroline would say, maybe medication, but let's not consider medication the unquestioned mainstay because of those serious side effects, which really are not just physical, but also mental. They're, the drugs are sedating. They can really wreck havoc with memory, et cetera. So she would say, let's, let's go one step further. But either way, we have to think about reducing isolation, creating connection. Caroline's motto uh, for her groups is, if I'm controlling, I'm not connecting. What she means is if I'm trying to prevent, if I'm trying to, let's go back to families and go back to my parents. Like all they wanted to do in those moments when my brother was diagnosed was just cling on stop him from getting into trouble, prevent the worst outcome, which, you know, as parents know, have been through this, is suicide. But in doing that, they couldn't connect with him. They couldn't really hear him. They couldn't hear who he was. And 
Caroline's whole approach is to put an emphasis on connection with the faith that it's connection that is the kind of curative force. And we just have a couple of minutes left, Daniel, but from what you've just shared, you know, this also speaks to, uh, you referenced the language of diagnoses and neurodiversity and why that's important to, to think about when we talk about mental illness. I think so. There's always the risk here of sounding naive, of sounding like one is overly normalizing what can be really a situation of suffering. But I think, and certainly Caroline, my brother, would say, look, let's let's think more expansively. Let's think more creatively. Let's think with greater empathy and let's affirm real difference. Look, you and I right now are living in a sense in different realities, right? We own each, occupy our subjective spaces and our subjective ways of seeing the world. Perhaps even when we're talking about greater differences in seeing the world, we should still recognize that these are ways of seeing that we should sort of pay attention to, that we shouldn't just push to the edge and try to constrain and control. Mm. There's a lot we didn't get to because of the time, but I thought also interesting uh, to to hear what you learned about how other countries approach uh, what we've discussed, including Israel. But that's a, a great uh, way to promote that your book again is out, The Mind and the Moon, My Brother's Story, The Science of Our Brains and the Search for Our Psyches, uh, for our listeners who want to learn more about uh, your work today, Daniel. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Thank you. Enjoy talking so- with you. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>